so to be a to be an entrepreneur, you have to be an optimist. To be an intrapreneur, you have to be a super optimist. Every single company that I've worked with has a group of early adopters that get it. You know, sometimes when you're working on innovation, you really feel lonely and you feel like you're on your own. But usually there's usually a core, a small group of people always, and all the way up to the leadership that really get innovation and really want to get something done. Welcome to Cross Pollination, a show about combining different fields, skills, and talents to be innovative, creative, and do things differently. We're a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Know how to wield an old-fashioned cutlass and cut through red tape? Be a corporate free thinker with a cannon, a plank, and a take-no-prisoners approach to innovation. Simply keen to change the status quo and improve how things are done where you work. If so, this episode is for you. This week, we're talking to Dr. Tendai Vicky, author of the new book, Pirates in the Navy. He's a business author on lean methods and many other aspects of innovation, as well as a consultant and an associate partner at Strategizer, who works with large organizations on innovation. He's an expert on entrepreneurship and how to do it. Tendai sails alongside the good podcast ship Cross Pollination and tells us about his own adventures in having been and helped others as a pirate in the Navy, as well as what he's learned and shares now with leaders and entrepreneurs working to create new value through innovation inside companies and through his new book. Is it easy? Is it cool? Is it a surefire route to career success? Heck no, but it is a swashbuckling ride. Yeah, so I mean, you know, you know what they say, right? It's better to be lucky than smart. So I stumbled into what I do because I ended up in a space that was kind of different from where I started. So I was born in Zimbabwe. That's where I grew up. Um, went to university in Harare, at the University of Zimbabwe, and then I got a scholarship to come to the UK to study for my PhD. So I came here to do a PhD in psychology. And then I ended up being a college professor. Right? I, I taught for 12 years at the University of Kent. But during that period when I was teaching, I got a fellowship to go to work at Stanford University. And that's where I started getting exposed to startups and technology and innovation. And that's what triggered the transition from just being a straight, pure psychology academic to becoming somebody who works on innovation. In particular, I help large companies figure out how to do innovation within their organizations. Yeah, no, I tried to get up on the startup side of things, but that didn't work out. <laughs> so like they say, like those, who, those who can't do coach. So <laughs> so I started off in forensic psychology, interestingly, and then I moved to social psych, ended up doing organizational psychology and creativity research as well, you know, towards the end of my academic career there. So yeah, it was a sort of a transition, sort of several transitions that happened right across a, a decade. And then, so actually two decades, because now it's like 20 years, but several you know, transitions over that that ended me up here with the composition we're having t- today. With a background that's crossed many continents and areas of knowledge that relate to change, relationships, creativity, innovation, and startups, it's maybe no surprise that Tendai is, like so many of the guests on the show, a cross-pollinator who's drawn on different elements of his background to do the work he does now. Yes, so that's interesting, right? Because... When I stepped into Lean Startup and design thinking, it's all really about figuring out what human beings want, right? And how to deliver value to human beings. It's all premised on the notion that the best innovations are those that create value for people. And then once you've got that foundation, you can then start figuring out how to get value back to your own startup or value back to your own company. And so, yeah, once we we start talking about learning what human beings want, 
I can really tap into a lot of my psychology background in terms of helping companies do that. So there is a lot of cross-pollination there. Just before I left academia, one of the topics I started researching was the role of cross-cultural experiences on creativity. And there was a lot of research that was being published by Maddox, I think that's his name, and colleagues who were talking about how the more cross-cultural experiences you have, the more uh, creative you become on various dimensions, various measures of creativity they were using. Really fantastic paper. And when they were talking about cross-cultural experiences, they were talking about, you know, like most people think they have cross-cultural experiences because they've been a tourist in various countries. They were saying people who visit various countries don't really gain the creativity boost, but people who live in a particular country for a period of time and embed themselves in the culture are much more likely to get a creativity boost. And so I kind of think that it's correct that, you know, wherever I've ended up right now is a combination of all the experiences I've had, you know, starting from Zimbabwe, moving to England, living in America for a while, being an academic, then moving into business. So all of that mixes together to make whatever it is that I do, you know, work. As Tendai mentioned, he now works with leaders and innovators inside large companies or entrepreneurs. And before he wrote Pirates in the Navy, he also wrote several other books on other aspects of that same topic. Yeah, so uh, my, my first book was called The Corporate Startup, which is cross-pollination, I guess, the corporate and the startup. And I was just talking there about how, you know, large companies can act like innovation ecosystems where they invest in a lot of ideas and then they create portfolios and they see what works and what doesn't work. So that was the first book I wrote. And then after that, I went a little deeper in terms of product lifecycle development. And I published a book called The Lean Product Lifecycle, which was a book that I co-wrote with Sonia Krasevich and Craig Strong, because we were part of a team at Pearson, the global publishing company. Uh, we in, we like created a, a innovation framework called The Lean Product Lifecycle. And that innovation framework actually won an award for the best innovation program in 2015, I think it was. And so... We're kind of trying to sort of figure that out together. And then we, yeah, we then wrote that book and, and we published that book. And in doing all of that work, like, you know, seeing all of those experiences, it brought me to my latest book called Pirates in the Navy, which I take all the lessons I've learned. And now I'm thinking, okay, how do you really succeed if you're going to be an entrepreneur? How do you succeed doing innovation inside large companies? And his new book? So it's a, it's a combination of all the mistakes I've made, mistakes I've seen other people make, and all the things that I've kind of figured out over time in terms of how to work and become successful. And, you know, it, it was Steve Jobs, right, who said it's better to be a pirate in the Na than to join the Navy. I actually think, you know, it's better to be a pirate in the Navy because when you're in an innovator inside a large company, you basically have no choice. You have to succeed by, by cross-pollinating those two fields, basically, together. Entrepreneurship is clearly a job that requires a pirate's rebel sensibilities combined with the discipline required to be in the Navy. And it's not for the faint of heart. What does it actually mean to be a pirate in the Navy? What drives entrepreneurs? What allows them to succeed as pirates? And what's their biggest challenge? Yeah, so, I mean, people are inspired by different things. People are inspired by seeing customer problems that just keep repeating themselves and they just want to solve those problems. Some people are really passionate about the company they work for and would love that company to sort of survive disruption. Some people are just really interested in working on new stuff. Like some people get bored with like repeatable day-to-day -day grind work, right? They want to start, you know, trying out new ideas. And so you get various motivations of why people become entrepreneurs. And then, you know, the really great ones are the ones that can survive the politics. The really bad ones are the ones that get frustrated by the politics and they end up leaving the company that they're working for, yeah. Some of the stuff around entrepreneurship can be counterproductive for an entrepreneur. 
so we really just need to see, you know, what can we take from the entrepreneurship world and what can we leave behind there and then build new capabilities, especially the ability to build relationships with colleagues inside the organization. This is the entrepreneur superpower. This is what distinguishes the great entrepreneurs from the ones that are frustrated and want to leave their jobs. That is, that is the biggest difference, right? If you're an entrepreneur, and you, especially if you're the founder, you can do whatever you want you know, to, to the extent that you need venture capital in, investment and maybe you need to align with your VC. But outside of that, right, you need to really be thinking, you can just focus on working on your, on your startup. If you're an entrepreneur, you can't just focus on your idea. You have to be thinking, okay, well, how do I get it out, out to market? Well, I need to talk to sales. How do I get it out to market? Well, I can't do it if legal and compliance didn't approve it as, you know, data compliant, whatever, right? So these are relationships that you need to build where people are happy to see you when you turn up rather than think, oh, here comes that arrogant so-and-so who's always talking about innovation, right? So you need to be thinking about those things as you're, as you're working. I, I believe that everything can be learned. And I mean, there are some people that are temperamentally unsuited for working in large companies because they always they have maybe you know abrasive, prickly personalities. But it's 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 something that we just need to master. I think how to build those relationships. If you're a corporate innovator, you're dealing with enemies on two fronts, right? You got enemies, well, other people, you know, other competitors outside the company, and then you've got internal enemies. <laughs> that are also trying to fight you know, you doing innovation work inside the organization. So it's really challenging because you're trying to figure out how you create value for customers, how you create value for, for, for the company. And at the same time, you're trying to fight that same company to give you space to do innovation, right? So it's kind of tough, yeah. So not for the faint of heart. Nevertheless, lots and lots of companies and other organizations want and know they need to innovate to respond to changes or trends in the environment around them to stay viable. It's not just a hot topic because it sounds cool. So does it start with entrepreneurs or with company leaders? When does Tendai end up getting a call and what do companies typically need help with? So, I mean, we, we, we understand fundamentally that a business model or any company cannot succeed without creating value for customers, right? That's something that's absolutely true. It's a foundational piece of the puzzle. But we're not prescriptive about where you start because, again, Sometimes you start with a solution that's looking for a problem because you're an R&D organization in a large manufacturing company, right? So you've got breakthrough technology and now you're looking for a use case for that technology. Sometimes you start with a customer problem, right? And you then try and, try and design a solution for that problem. That's also another way to actually do it. Sometimes you start with a trend that you're noticing out in the world around population movements or changes in human behavior around consumption of plastic, whatever it is, right? So you start anywhere. You can start from any epicenter. But for you to succeed, you eventually have to solve, am I creating value for human beings? And how do I get value back into my organization? So from where, it doesn't matter where you start. Ultimately, you have to solve the same puzzle pieces. Like I've been in so many companies now, you know, maybe close to 50 companies. And there's no place to start. You, know, you just start where you are. And so in some companies, there is leadership support, really strong leadership support. The CEO is the one that's driving it. And in that situation, you're very fortunate because you've got leadership support. And then you just have to bring in everybody else and align in terms of what you want to do. So that's one thing. In other companies, the leadership doesn't get it. The movement is starting right from the bottom ranks. And then they have to figure out how to convince their leaders to, to, you know, to, 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 to give them space. In some organizations, they had leadership support and then they lost it because of innovation theater. 
in some organizations that have leadership support, but now the leaders are starting to say, mm, what's going on here? All these programs you've started are not creating value. So now they're worried and they're looking for ways to start creating value. So you just sort of strategize that we have a diagnostic methodology we call innovation readiness assessment. And we use that to benchmark where the organization is and then help them make decisions about, you know, where do they actually start with innovation? What do they need to work on first? So it's clear that innovation needs to create value. But what's innovation theater? Tendai talks about it quite a bit. And if you've ever seen it happen in companies or an ecosystem, it's also dangerously attractive and distracting. Yes, yeah, so innovation theater is basically a bunch of activities that look like innovation but ultimately don't create any value for the organization. So examples include things like a training workshop where people learn design thinking methods. And then after the workshop, they go back to their jobs and can't use the methodology anyway. Or you do a hackathon and then there's an idea that wins. And what that idea wins is the opportunity to write a 30-page business plan rather than actually test their idea. So you, you get a lot of that stuff where it's like, hey, we did a hackathon, we're driving an innovation culture. But ultimately, the ultimate impact of it is kind of nothing happens afterwards, right? Nothing happens after the hackathon, nothing happens after the design jam. It's just a whole bunch of activity with no value, ultimate value being created for the company. No, I mean, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing better than a hackathon. All weekend, building applications, drinking liquor, eating pizzas, right? it's pretty cool. It's like, hey, look, we're, 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 we're being like a startup. The only difference is that on Monday morning, the startup is still doing what you were doing over the weekend. And they're still trying to figure out how to sell their product. Whereas for you on Monday morning, you're back at your desk answering emails and doing Zoom Skype calls with your boss. So that's the distinction. And so what we want is to say, how do we pull the thread from the hackathon straight through the organization to make sure that they're doing the work even on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday after the startup weekend? So much for just doing the fun, cool stuff. So innovation needs to create value, and companies need to avoid getting sucked into the temptations of innovation theater. Which brings us to something we've heard before on this show, way back in episode 16 with Janice Francisco, who also works with large companies on innovation. Which is the really tricky thing that established companies have to do when it comes to innovating. Namely, doing that and keeping their eye on the ball with respect to their existing business and current opportunities at the same time. There's an inherent tension there compared to startups that are more focused on innovating but don't yet have a strongly established business to take care of. That is the challenge of an existing company. That is what defines it. You have to exploit your current success while exploring new opportunities. You have to be good at both things, unlike a startup, which is only focused on the one thing that they're working on. There's inevitably tension between those two things, especially because the existing business is immediately rewarding. So if you put stuff in it, it immediately gives you results, whereas innovation might take two to three years before you see something, right? So sometimes there's a tension between those things, yeah. One question I had for Tendai is about what happens in companies where there's already a strong R&D research and development function to come up with new things. There's a long history of well-known products that have come out of company R&D departments or labs, like, for example, the good old photocopier from Xerox. How does R&D fit in with innovation? Do you need both? Yeah, so that's interesting, right? So Because a lot of people sometimes mistake R&D for innovation, right? I think that R&D is an absolutely essential element of coming up with breakthrough ideas, especially if you're working in pharma or manufacturing or any form of, sort of technology company. I think you need to do really great R&D. The question is just, you know, what do we do with the outputs of the R&D? So if you think about it, like from a university context, right, a lot of universities 
have this have their scientists working on various things and then they have like a knowledge transfer thing where they start having to think about how do we commercialize all these things that are coming out of our out of our labs and a lot of companies have the same challenge right how do you commercialize the things that are coming out of the R&D labs and so that forces you to have to think beyond technology and really think about how you create value beyond technology so the business model is basically the bridge between your R&D technology stuff and the real world right the only way you can get value from the world is if you figure out a business model to to then channel your R&D outputs into the into customers hands that necessity for a good business model connecting the cool tech to the real world is worth remembering and i know i've seen it forgotten more than once Getting back to how innovation can actually happen in companies, like a lot of other guests who've appeared on this show, Tendai believes and outlines in his book how innovation can be managed and structured as a process, one that can be taught, learned, and adopted with appropriate adaptations in different organizations and industries. It's even starting to be taught in business schools where there's increasing recognition that the world where companies operate is often uncertain and changing all the time, and companies need to be able to respond to that to stay viable. Yes, no. I mean, within business schools. I mean, today, just today, I got a message from someone by LinkedIn who said, "Oh, it's really great to connect with you. Um, I I read your article during an MBA program. It's one of the recommended readings." And so you can see that you know, even within MBA programs, there's now a demand, especially from organizations, to say, "Can you please give us a, a bunch of employees that know how to respond to an ever-changing world?" Right. We know we used to teach people that, you know, the job of a leader is to find a competitive advantage and then protect that competitive advantage forever. But now the job of leaders is to navigate their companies from competitive advantage to competitive advantage to competitive advantage because the competitive advantage is temporary. So you always have to be thinking about the next thing. Right. And so that's become management 101. And the question becomes, you know, how do we develop leaders that are able to actually do that? The more the world changes, the more it stays the same. Right. So there, there's always those, those kind of things. I think. The thing that surprises leaders a little bit more these days is just how quickly things can shift. It's the speed, the pace. Not that the fact that things change, but it's just the pace of change. So you used to be able to, if you found a competitive advantage, you could probably you know, exploit it for a few decades. But these days, you're lucky if you can exploit a competitive advantage for 10, 20 years, right? So that kind of speed of change is really what's getting, what's sort of catching companies out and they're having to really learn to, you know, to design business models that are responsive and management processes that are responsive to that level of change, the pace of change. So where do companies start? Yeah, you know, it's almost like uh, they're stuck in this creativity bind, right, where they assume that, you know, they're, so there's a, they're stuck in a couple of binds. One is that innovation is a black box, so just give people money and let them do whatever they do and then see what comes out. They don't have a management process around it. So that's one bind. The other bind is that leaders are so used to picking winning ideas themselves that sometimes they try and pick the winning ideas, put a lot of money in them, and then those ideas still fail. And so we try and tell them, you can't pick the winning ideas on day one. You have to create a context in which people work on a lot of stuff, test that stuff, see what works, and then you double down on the things that are working. But even though you're working on a whole bunch of stuff and seeing what's going to work, you don't just let people do whatever they want. There is a management framework, tools that you can use to track progress of these ideas, measure them and see whether people are doing the right things and then double down on those things that are actually working. So they, we, we figured out a methodology to sort of unlock that bind so they don't have to pick the winning ideas and they also don't have to allow people to do whatever they want. They can kind of mix those two things together and they can do innovation management. It is a combination of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks uh, and also like throwing the right stuff at the right wall 
and say and using the right metric to measure stickiness, right? So you can kind of you know you can combine these things. And so one of the things that's, that's been interesting, you know, as I started doing the work was people had binary conversations like you you can't manage innovation. It's a creative process. Don't bring MBAs around here. And then the MBAs are like, look at those innovators. All they do is sticky note stuff and they create nothing of value. And so you had this sort of binary conversation happening, almost like a civil war inside a lot of companies. And we're just like, there's no need to have the civil war. Management practices can actually be designed to sort of track whether or not iterative processes are creating value. And so you can you can put two things together, right? Two things can be true at the same time. It doesn't mean that they always have to be in conflict with each other. How does that process actually work? What are some of the tools that companies can use to manage and structure innovation projects? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm associate partner at Strategizer, where I work with Alex Osterwalder. So, so we have two types of tools, right? We have tools where we say you must design breakthrough ideas. So design really wonderful business models, design breakthrough value propositions, try and think beyond just technology, product and services, and really think about the value you create for customers and really think about, you know, um, how you can build a really great business model around that. So the business model canvas, the value proposition canvas, really great tools for doing design. But then, you know, after you've done the design, we then have a process for asking you a much more interesting question, which is, okay, that looks really cool, right? You know, but we don't want we don't want you to write a business plan so we can give you loads of money. Instead, what we want you to do is to tell us what are all the things that would have to be true for your business idea to work. And so that process of questioning people on the things that have to be true for their business ideas to work starts extracting all the assumptions they've been making while they've been designing. And so by extracting those assumptions, you can then ask another set of questions, which is, well, how much evidence do you currently have that those things are actually true? And in that moment, that's what I call the innovation moment. In that moment, you then start working through solving those things and getting towards success. So I often say this, I don't care what you do. I don't care what you call it. You call it an accelerator, a decelerator, an incubator, a disincubator. Call it an X-lab. I don't care what you do. Whatever you do, make sure that you're creating actual value for you, for the company that you work for. It's the only way that you're going to survive, right? And so then it's over to you to figure out how to create that value. I asked Tendai about the role of intuition once a company has decided to embark on some innovation initiatives. Given that initially, as he's mentioned, there may be a lot of assumptions and a high degree of uncertainty about whatever new experiments are being tried. Where does intuition fit in this process, as well as concrete structures and metrics? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. So you're designing, all of this is intuition, actually. The only thing is after we've finished, we've finished doing the intuition piece, we go to the world and see if we're right. And so if I ask you to design a business model, you're basically imagining a thing that's not, that's not there. So you're using your intuition to see how these things might work. If I ask you to tell me all the things you think need to be true for this idea to work, you're still using your intuition because sometimes it turns out that that thing is true and your business model still fails. And so you have to kind of figure out that, okay, I thought that what really mattered was customers wanted and are willing to pay this much, but I didn't realize that the, the real unknown unknown was this thing around manufacturing in India, whatever it is that's kind of like, you know, that kind of catches you out. And so we just say to people, Always anticipate that there's going to be things that are going to catch you out and prepare for those things as you're kind of, you know, working, um, working alongside and building your business model. 
So the experimentation process is a way of prodding the world. So as you step in and start testing your ideas before, so we say test your ideas before you scale them. As you start testing your ideas, the information that comes from testing tells you the things that you thought you knew and the things that come up that you didn't expect. And how you respond to those things is, you know, increases the likelihood that you become successful as you're doing your work. That's about experiments, which is also a topic that's come up before, especially way back in episode 14, Why Innovation is a Survival Skill, and a master's program that purposely teaches innovation methodologies, including experiments, and how to shape them. Once you have experiments, you can generate information about the new processes, products, or services that a company is creating. Then what do you do? You apply some of those management structures around innovation and measure the results of the experiments you're trying against metrics you've set up to evaluate them and decide whether they should be taken further or not. I asked Tendai how different metrics work between different industries to evaluate new projects, if they're a lot different or similar. He talked about customizing them, but fundamentally, they draw on the same questions. Yeah, so the thing about it is that it doesn't... It, I mean, it all depends on the level at which you're looking, right? So there's a level of granularity where things become different. The customers become different. The channels become different. Everything is different, right, in terms of different industries. But if you look at it from a business model lens, you'll find that the elements are still the same. And you ask the same questions. Do we have evidence that our customers like this value proposition and they're willing to pay for it? Do we have evidence that we found the right value proposition that works and resonates with our customers? Do we have evidence that we found the right channels to reach our customers? Do we have evidence that we found the right manufacturer to create the value proposition with us. All of these questions remain the same. So the business model quandary is is not different in terms of the key elements of what makes something a profitable undertaking. And so what we just say to companies is that's the overall picture you're trying to solve for. And so as you're tracking the progress of these ideas, just focus on those elements. You can make them more bespoke for your own industry, but the broader questions remain the same. And what we're looking for is evidence that you have traction on all these key elements. So the goal of innovating is to create value. What does that actually mean? What can value look like? Is it only about P&L, profit and loss, and making more money for the company? Or can value take different forms? Yes, so the ultimate value is P&L value. The next form of value is maybe optimizing the company's processes so that they become more efficient. That's saving money, right? So still P&L. And then there is the the culture change value, which I find that's a vanity metric because culture change is only useful to the extent that it hits the bottom line, right? It makes the company more sustainable. And so it's really important to connect all those two things and make sure that we're creating value. There's also really important value. So there's companies, you know, that are doing the triple bottom line. So they're talking about their impact on society and their impact on the world and making the world a better place. Again, metrics you can measure. So all we're saying is whatever it is, is your company's strategic goal in terms of the value it wants to create, jump in that stream and use your hackathon, your decelerator, accelerator, incubator, X-Lab to make sure that you're delivering value to that. So that's about innovation processes, structures, metrics, tools, and experiments that can help guide and manage the process of developing business models that bring about new value. In companies, the bottom line measure of value is very often measured in the form of P&L, profit and loss. But for-profit companies aren't the only ones these days who need to innovate. Whether it's tech innovation, process innovation, or developing new products and services, it's everywhere, as we've also heard about in episodes on social innovation and civic innovation. Governments, nonprofits, and social enterprises innovate too. So how do those organizations evaluate innovation? 
How do you measure the value of new innovative initiatives in organizations when profit isn't necessarily the objective or maybe not the main one? Yeah, so I mean, there's a tool that's been developed that's a complementary tool to the business model canvas. It's called the mission model canvas. And so, you know, for, for non-governmental organizations, sorry for, sorry, for governments and NGOs and nonprofits, right, we use the mission model canvas, which is in the end, you have to state the value that you're the value that you're that your work is, is trying to create, what is the mission value? And so that is what we've then started, you know, designing around and, and iterating around. I mean, the UK government was really, it was, it was interesting, right, that the UK government was really powerful in, in designing, uh, creating, you know, when they went digital, they had a really nice digital unit, really famous now, and they really implemented loads of design thinking, loads of best practices, right? And so... You can see that all over the world, and it's just absolutely necessary. Like, why do I still need to walk around with a piece of paper that says I have a driver's license, right? In a you know in a in a world where everything is digital, right? So you know all of these things are are, are things that governments are having to respond to and actually deal with. Yeah. Inevitably, innovating in companies means change. Changes in ways to do things sometimes change pretty fundamentally in how companies need to think about what they do. Not just running an existing business, but innovating and developing new value-creating things at the same time. Change and change management are topics Tendai talks a lot about in his book, and the need for innovators to develop skills and networks to help navigate and facilitate change to make innovation possible and sustainable within the companies where they work. I think the thing that makes innovation change management a little different is the notion that you're really trying to build behaviors that are almost alien to the organization. And so the ex- the extreme nature of the change might make the change much more difficult to actually put in place. But the process still remains the same, right? You have to bring people along. You have to convince them that the change is necessary. You have to, trans- you know, you have to transform and change their attitudes towards the change. And then you have to sort of keep at it until the change has really taken root to ensure that the change sticks. And so the challenges still remain the same, but you know, for innovation, it's probably a little bit more extreme in terms of the kinds of change that you're trying to actually drive. Exactly, it's like a massive paradigm shift, yeah. So the, you know, one of the most unexpected things that I've, I, I've, I've encountered, and I didn't expect this walking into a lot of organizations, is that every single company that I've worked with has a group of early adopters that get it. You know, sometimes when you're working on innovation, you really feel lonely and you feel like you're on your own. But usually there's usually a core, a small group of people always, and all the way up to the leadership that really get innovation and really want to get something done. And I spent the early part of my career focused on the detractors and trying to change the minds of the detractors until I learned that actually it's better to focus on early adopters and help the early adopters become successful and then using that success from early adopters, you start to get more legitimacy and traction across the rest of the organization. Yeah, so you don't go to the early majority. What you do with early adopters is you you work with them to get early wins, and then you celebrate those early wins within the organization. And by celebrating the early wins within the organization and telling those stories, and even letting the early adopters themselves tell those stories, you're much more likely to then, you know, see the early majority emerging from the woodworks and, and asking to be part of it. So what you're trying to do is create gravity. That's what I often say to, to, to the innovators I work with. Let's go out into the organization and create gravity that draws people to our movement rather than trying to force it upon them. Yeah. Continuing on the topic of change, a question I had to ask Tendai is about the pandemic, which has wrought quite sudden and wrenching change to nearly every industry almost overnight. 
What has the pandemic changed for companies with respect to innovation? And what can they be doing about it? So that's an interesting one, right? The pandemic, I know that people are calling it a black swan, whatever. It wasn't really a black swan in the sense that there were loads of people that were expecting something like this to happen. I think even Barack Obama said something about it like a few years ago. And so it's not an unexpected event, but it's kind of unexpected in the sense that people in the business world weren't really expecting it and they weren't expecting the impact to be so large. So it's hard to prepare for something like that. But what we're learning and what we're finding out is that there's certain organizations that have already developed an innovation muscle before the crisis arrives. And so they're able to quickly pivot to other things. So you can see Uber is really quickly pivoting to delivering anything, right? They're just using the machinery they had and they quickly pivot to delivering food, delivering your dry cleaning, whatever it is. And that's because Uber had already started experimenting with Uber Eats before the pandemic hits. And so what you want to do is you want to be experimenting and developing your innovation muscle before the crisis arrives. Otherwise, you're not ready. You know, by the time you get a heart attack, it's too late to go jogging. Right. And so it's, it's important for companies to do that. And that's really what the pandemic is actually exposing. It's a disruptor for some and an accelerator for others who are already on the right path. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Scott Anthony, one of my favorite authors, says, you know, innovate before you need to. Because the ability to innovate and the need to innovate are inversely related. It's been really interesting to watch because some companies just say, okay, let's all hunker down and wait for it to pass and then we'll get back to business as usual. And some other companies are using it as an opportunity to actually drive some of the changes they wanted to drive before. Or to double down on certain things like, you know, the digital transformations or even like, you know, start testing out business models that are are kind of independent of, you know, face-to-face contact. Yes. And then there's also like, there's also, so you don't want to be unfair, right? There are also businesses where it's impossible, right? To, that's the thing about crises is that they benefit other things and kill other things. That's kind of like what, how disruption works. So if you're like running a pub or you're running a hairdresser's, like you have to shut down and go home. There's no way of doing hairdressing without having, coming into contact with, with people. Unless you decide that you're going to do online teaching of how to help people do their own hair, that's, that can become a secondary revenue stream for you. So, you know, the, 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 the impact of a crisis like this is not shared equally, right, across all industries. And so that's also something we have to recognize and really be fair in our judgments there. No, I mean, so, so I mean, one of the things we, we can do is that just imagine that things never go back to normal, Right. And then the question becomes, well, how do you do business from that point going forward? And then you have to start iterating on your business model and changing and testing various things. I mean, as strategizer, we were hit pretty hard, you know, at the early stages of the of the of the pandemic because our business model was really based around face-to-face contact with people, workshops, etc. And then we started running experiments to test various options. So one of our face-to-face masterclasses, we made it a virtual masterclass and we even had a larger attendance, a much more global attendance than we do at our physical masterclasses. And so just the ability to do that, you know, to sort of you know, jump into the crisis and start testing, you know, various value propositions and business models, this is something that companies can do. And so when, when we get asked this question, we just say, great, let's figure it out, right? Let's come up with, with, with ideas and start testing those ideas. If you're interested, you can hear some more examples of how companies and industries are adapting to the pandemic in two recent episodes of our show, Pandemic Pivot and Pandemic Pop-Up. Getting towards a wrap-up, what's Tendai's best advice for entrepreneurs or innovators inside companies? 
Yeah, no, I, all, I, all I often say to entrepreneurs is that if you're going to be working in a large company, just make sure that you're connected to what's happening inside your large company, right? Uh, people often ask me, what do you think about innovation labs? And I go, I don't think anything about it, innovation labs. I only care about whether or not whatever's happening there is creating value. The best way to create value if you're a lab is to make sure that the work you're doing is connected to what's happening inside your organization. And so, because at some point you're going to need resources to scale your ideas. At some point, someone important is going to make have to make a decision about what to do with the work that you're doing. And it is at that point that you'll find out whether or not you are creating something that the organizations find, find valuable or whether you're just engaging in innovation theater. Also, don't feel bad if you're not an entrepreneur. Tendai and many of our other guests haven't sugarcoated how tough it can be to be an innovator trying to change long-embedded corporate processes, systems, and ways of thinking. It's tough to be an entrepreneur, too, as we've heard from other innovators on the show. Interestingly, although startups and entrepreneurship have become super hot these days, it's still entrepreneurship that has generated the most innovations. Tendai explains why. Yes, that one is a recent one. So I often used to base all my conversations with leaders in terms of how startups are the best places to innovate. But as it turns out, the research actually shows that the vast majority of the breakthrough innovations that have happened, that have had the most impact in the world over the last you know, 30, 40, 50 years, have actually emerged from established companies, right? And that's research by Kyan Krippendorf. He's got a really great book called Driving Innovation from Within, something people should check out. And so that's that's that was a real surprise. And 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 that really changed my, 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 my point of view, because what it, what it means is that we can really start looking at patterns about what makes entrepreneurship successful. And if we can really study that and understand it, we can teach that to people rather than studying what makes entrepreneurship successful and then trying to figure out how to make it fit into a large company. Right? And so, you know, that's really changed my orientation in terms of thinking as well. So that's it for this episode all about what it takes to innovate inside companies. If you're interested in knowing more, you can find Tendai's book, Pirates in the Navy, as well as his previous books online and on his website, TendaiVicky.com or at TendaiVicky on Twitter. You can also check out some of our other guests' opinions and experience on entrepreneurship in episodes 1, 14, and 16. Cross-Pollination will be on summer break for the month of August and we'll be back in September with a new season, but we still enjoy hearing from you. If you enjoyed this episode or had any comments on it, you can connect with this show at crosspollination.co or at pollinata1 on Twitter. And we especially appreciate if you enjoyed the show and recommended it to anyone else. This episode of Cross Pollination is brought to you by World on Fire, a new podcast from CBC Edmonton. World on Fire is a new five-part series that takes you to the front lines of -of out-of-control wildfires in Canada, Australia, and California. Recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, hosts Adrian Lamb and Mike Flanagan look at what it takes to find hope in the midst of fear and destruction and how communities affected by wildfires rebuild. This series examines the high costs that wildfires cause to people's health, homes, and communities. Find World on Fire on the CBC Listen app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it online at cbc.ca slash worldonfire. This episode of Cross Pollination is brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your energy from. If you choose Park Power, your money stays here. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is important to Park Power's owner, 
Chris Zawoski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. Learn more at parkpower.ca. Thanks for listening, and if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, have a great summer.